episode 283 of the Global From Asia podcast. Today we're in for a treat, riding the early days of the Chinese dragon or the Chinese internet. Fascinating conversation with somebody I've been looking up to for many years. I met early on in my China journey. It's a pleasure to have him on. Welcome to the Global From Asia podcast, where the daunting process of running an international business is broken down into straight up actionable advice. And now your host, Michael Michelini. Thank you, everybody, for choosing to download and listen to this show. Somebody is trying to listen to this on Spotify. I'm getting old. I think it's set up on Spotify, but I couldn't even find it. I have to look into that. Sorry about that. Mostly on the old fashioned channels. I'm old-fashioned. I'm getting old. You know, I can't believe I'll be 40 years old soon. Life is flying. And uh, today's show is, you know, I'm really excited about today's show. A lot a lot of you have been asking me about my own journey. I'm, gonna, I'm going back to China for a little bit. I don't want to clog up the intro. I want to get into the meat of the interview. But I think in the blah, blah, blah session, I will, uh, I will share a little bit about going back to China for some time. I know some of the listeners and friends have been asking me, so if you want to listen in to my, my China return a little bit after the amazing interview today. Also, I'm here in Bangkok for a few days. Asia, Asia, excuse me, Affiliate World Asia, AWA. I uh, was invited as media here, did a little video, met some amazing people, going to get some amazing guests that were speaking there. Man, it was some pretty cool people. And uh, Affiliate is a much different space than I'm used to. <laughs> uh, some very fun characters and uh, a little bit more, a little bit more on the black to gray side of the uh, marketing world for sure. Um, getting some interesting insights. And then tomorrow, well, this will be done by now. Stellar World Conference. We're a media partner here at Global From Asia. Also, Chris, FBA for you and some other cool people, Howard Tai and some others were here. Zach Franklin brought a bunch of us. So I will be covering or attending, doing a little vlog as well. Uh, if you want to check that out on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash global from Asia. We try to keep up videos, also put video versions of this podcast as well. So that's some cool stuff. All right, let's get into today's show. It's episode 283, globalformasia.com. We do have a website. I know like Peter and some others, listeners, don't even know we have a website, man. We spend a lot of time on this website, but we have all the show notes. We try to put the transcription on there as soon as possible and other info. You can see T.R. Harrington, a little bit of a mentor of mine for many years. He's, uh, I remember looking up to him. I went to an SEO conference in Xiamen, China in 2009, and I met him, and he was running his own agency, Darwin Marketing, and uh, he's done so many amazing things. He's met he's met so many entrepreneurs in a, in a space. He's co-director of Mox Accelerator. It's mobile-only accelerator in Taipei, Taiwan. I was invited up there to share and speak, and we, um, we got to do this interview. So it's a real pleasure, and there was so much to talk about. I think we got to get him back on the show. Actually, so many guests we have to get back on the show, but I uh, I was really fascinated by this conversation. It's kind of like his journey coming to China and just seeing the internet evolve and how he took advantage of that and started an agency, got a partner, shared some pretty in- interesting insights, also some insights about social data, the Chinese internet opening and Chinese internet kind of closing and things like that. So if you're interested, I really, uh, really think you can enjoy this one. We did it in person in Taipei, Taiwan. Let's tune in. 
I literally just paid my rent with GoRemit.hk. My last rent in a while in Thailand, but it's also useful for making payments into mainland China, into the Philippines, into Vietnam, and other countries as well. Those are where I'm using it for, for my programmers in Vietnam, for my amazing team in the Philippines, my rent in Thailand, my suppliers in China. All can be done from www.goremit.hk. It's like an e-wallet solution where you fund it from your Hong Kong bank or other Hong Kong financial sources. I know it's helped out Chris Davey from FBA4U.com and some others at tough times. So it's a really cool founder, Simon Lim, and others there in the team that have really gone above and beyond. It's not just the service, it's also people. So of course, they make a little bit of money off the transaction on a percentage basis, but it usually works out to be, depending on the size of the transaction, less than a bank wires or smaller, especially for micro payments to team members in different parts of the world. I would recommend it also for small suppliers, maybe an EWU, we've used it for payments and other places. Check them out at www.goremit.hk and tell them GFA sent you. All right, thank you everybody for tuning in to another Global From Asia podcast. We're here in Taipei, Taiwan, and I get to meet an old friend, T.R. Harrington. Thanks for, thanks for coming on the show, T.R. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, it's great. I'm here in the MOX Accelerator, and T.R. is the new head of the program, and it's a pleasure. I'll, I haven't done it yet, but I'm excited to share about what we're doing right now, content creation, content marketing, and... Uh, you know, like we're just talking about some of the listener feedback, the realness. So um, I, I'm excited to share it here at, at, uh, at the program. Uh, TR, you have so much experience. Honestly, we talked for quite a while last night over dinner. There's, there's so yeah. many kind of angles. I also excited for you to have your, we'll help, help hopefully get you started on your own show. But um, you're, you're in China. You were 20 years 15 years no no no, no. not like... quite not quite um so my my china journey originally started in uh, 1994 when i came over to visit a college roommate uh, who'd moved there after we graduated in 93 uh, and that began my fascination uh, and uh, you know initial i would say in- introduction to to china um, and certainly starting out in Beijing in like 94, bicycles, you wow. know, almost no cars, yeah. except for government cars and a few taxis. And then, you know, uh, took the old trains, you know, the rickety slow overnight trains from like Beijing down to Nanjing, <laughs> down to Shanghai. And just everywhere you looked, there was construction, right? This this just massive movement, uh, infrastructure, buildings going up and thinking at that time, you know, you know, 15 years or 20 years, this place is really going to be something. And coming back for my return visit was in uh, the year 2000, like for uh, right around New Year's of 2000. And between the time I left and the time I came back, like uh, Shanghai, when I was there in 94, you went to the Bund, you know, the famous along the river with all, you know, the Art Deco architecture. And you looked across the river and all you saw was the Pearl Tower mm-hmm. and fields and cows. Like there was nothing in Amazing. Pudong in 94. And so to come back in the year 2000 and see 
all of these skyscrapers. You know, they built a city the size of Philadelphia near where I grew up in basically five, six years. So that was just, it was just mind blowing, you yeah, know, to amazing. see the speed of this infrastructure, you know, kind of development. And so then I started coming to China regularly from that point. I, I moved there for the first time in the fall of 2001. Okay. I was in Shanghai for about a month, month and a half, and that same college roommate, we made a bargain. Uh, I told him I would build him his website, you know, do all the HTML and design. And in exchange, I wanted him to take me someplace in China where people didn't speak English. Uh, and that's, that's how I ended up in Kunming, yeah. uh, studying uh, Mandarin with, uh, with a professor and with a local uh, English language student. Uh, and that really got me my baseline in, uh, in, in Mandarin until I went to uh, business school uh, back in University of Virginia. And then in 2003 in the fall, um, unlike most of my classmates who were preparing to, you know, get into their consulting jobs or their general management jobs, uh, I, I really was betting my future on China, so I decided to do the exchange program at SEBS, the China European International Business School. And uh, by the end of uh, 2000, or by the end of my uh, business school program in June of 2004, um, that's when I made the leap and started uh, a move to China full time. Uh, and I was there until the end of 2016. Okay. So it was, you know, 12 and a half years full time. And then prior to that, like another, you know, six to nine months, you know, of living in Kunming and kind of back and forth. So altogether, a little bit over 13 years. Amazing. But, but you know, dog years. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, they were fast and they were hard. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, you were there, you know. I saw, you, yeah, I mean, we met. I met, because, yeah, you said you built an HTML website, you know, like, you're you're you know you're a web marketer. I mean, Darwin Marketing is how I met you. Right. In two, at a search marketing expo in Shaman. In Shaman. Two thousand nine, I think, if I remember right, two thousand ten or nine. Yeah, it was and, early. It was early days. It was definitely it was the first search engine conference that I had attended in China. I don't yeah. and I don't think there were many more. We talked about Inway Ni. Inway is great. Right, our mutual friend uh, from Xiamen who put together that conference and I think invited us both down there. Yep, yep. Um, and uh, Shaquille Khan, who I mentioned earlier, who went on to do some pretty amazing things with uh, Spotify and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, that was that was a seminal time. It's it's uh... We saw, I think that's when Weibo even started or something kicked off. I remember seeing Weibo starting around that time, uh, the, the Sino Weibo one. And Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and that was huge because that was uh, one of the first times that really the, the I would say, the individual, you know, um, citizen in China suddenly had a, you know, like a, like a voice yeah. and ability to, to, to share something and, you know, particularly like when the, I think if you remember the high-speed train crash um, in China, yeah. uh, when, when that happened within, I think, the first couple of months that they were running it, um, it was one of the few times when the media came out so fast, they couldn't control it, yep. right? They couldn't deny it. Yeah. And, uh, and that was, you know, really, a, I, I think, a, 
a very important moment uh, for the Chinese citizens to have a voice, you know, with their own, you know, with their own government, you know, to be able to, you know, to, to, to share and to speak out. Um, and I really think Weibo is an extremely uh, important platform, um, you know, regardless of what you think about it from a marketing perspective, just as, you know, like having a voice um, in a place where it's, it's not easy, yeah. you know, where it is highly regulated uh, mm -hmm. when it comes to media um, and it comes to content. Uh, I really think Weibo has, uh, you know, provided a little bit of balance um, out there so that, so that the, the average citizen does have a way to share. It's true. I mean, it was definitely like a cat and mouse game sometimes. The government would try to deny sure. or control what the mass, mass, the media or what people would see. And then there's these comments and news and resharing of posts. I don't know if how much of a tangent I want to get onto this, <laughs> but then there was a whole, what is it, 500 retweet rule? There was some rule that mm. they came out with. That's um, my wife's friend and famous investor in Beijing got arrested because uh, if they find out your post is false, oh yeah, you can go to jail if it's Certainly. posted more than five hundred times, something or something. I might, I might be wrong on the numbers, but then even just some small difference of the color, like blue or black or gray or white, in the description wasn't true they could find something that's not true to uh yeah, to put, get you in trouble <laughs> right yeah. to put to put to put pressure right yeah. you know to, to to and also you know i think in some ways it's not bad that there were repercussions um because you know if we look at this from a u.s perspective right in the way twitter you know is out there i mean it's very interesting actually to hear recently that twitter uh decided not to accept political ads you know, for the upcoming election. Yeah. Um, and Facebook is actually taking a completely opposite response. They're doubling down, uh, even after all the damage that they did, you know, to, to, to the U.S. in that last election. But I, but I do think, you know, that having, um, you know, to having some degree of responsibility, you know, uh, for, for, what you, for what you're posting, particularly if you're reaching, you know, so many people, you know, uh, I, I think that there's a good balance, right? I'm not saying the way that China does it, you know, is the right way or the way the U.S. does it is the right way. But I do feel like, you know, there could be, you know, somewhere in the middle is probably, you know, the better way to do it. Agreed. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you had said you moved back to the States in 16 right during this crazy election time. I mean, I remember watching it, watching it from you know, the internet in Shenzhen at the time, and the world is crazy with social media. But let's get back to the story. So mm -hmm. I, I want today to be about, you know, the journey of right. entrepreneurship in China and then some, some lessons people can learn and some takeaways for maybe their China journey or, you know. Um, so then Kunming, yeah, I remember when we even first met, you had told me you went totally submerged yourself to learn Chinese mm -hmm. right away, and I think that probably was the right, the right thing to do to do business in China. Yeah, I mean, so you know, prior to coming to China, I'd been in Silicon Valley, and I built up a lot of uh, you know experience doing digital marketing, very data-driven kind of optimization. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I knew if you were going to, you know, build a business, uh, particularly in a, in a different culture, uh, in a different country, uh, if you're in marketing, you have to be able to communicate, right? You know, so being able to speak um, and being able to uh, listen, you know, was critical for, for me, like uh, having a platform, I would say, for the future to be able to build a business. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm an experiential learner. Uh, so I think you're staying here, learn <laughs> by getting our, getting our, getting in the fire. Right. Just, <laughs> just, you know, throw, throw, throw me in the deep end. Right. You know, and, and, and try to find a way to swim. Um, you know, I really tried to do, I would say the reading and writing as well. Uh, but I found in the first month, uh, that my progress was just too slow and I really kind of allocated maybe like four and a half months of intense study where I wasn't really doing anything else but that. So the latter three and a half months, I really just focused on, you know, kind of the verbal part of the language. And, you know, I got a base, right? It Great. still wasn't good, you know, um, but it sort of enabled me to at least have like some basic conversations, sure. you know, with people. Um, and, I, and I felt like it's particularly where I was in Kunming, um, people were very friendly and willing to sort of engage, you know, with me. Uh, and even get over how poor, you know, my mm -hmm. Chinese pronunciation, you know, was. I still think the Chinese are pretty supportive of foreigners learning their language. I think they love it, right? They're... Yeah, I, I do. I agree. I think, I think the Chinese, you know, as a general population, you know, they're, they're very accommodating, you know, with our imperfections when it comes to speaking their language. Um, and that has not always been the case. I felt like in, uh, you know, I didn't always feel that same warmth, for instance, in, in Paris. Yeah, especially. <laughs> Speaking my bad French. They say Japan, they don't even let you. I'm not so much in right. Japan, but in previous shows and things, they said Japanese don't even want you to try to speak right. their, their language. Right. Yeah, so, so in that case, yeah, I think that, you know, the, the, the Chinese are, are, are very open and welcoming and you know, we both subsequently married Chinese yeah, women, Chinese you know, yeah. who, who dealt with our imperfections, um, you know, on, on many different levels. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, that was, I felt like that was an initial starting point. Um, and and uh, the way I thought about this was that, you know, I, I was applying to business school at the time. And I figured if I didn't get into a school that I thought was going to be a good return on investment, um, that, you know, my plan was to, instead of go back to the U.S. to, to do that 18 months or, you know, 21 months uh, with, the, with the summer off, then I was going to be just moving back to Shanghai and I was going to try to find my way there. Okay. Yeah, so, uh, so but 2002, I ended up in, in school. In 2003, I came back. And then 2004, it was like, okay, I'm in Shanghai and uh, I don't speak great Chinese. Um, I've... I've I've met this incredible woman while I was there in 2003 who became my future wife. Awesome. And, but uh, in terms of like the internet development, I mean, it was like dong dong. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, like even Taobao had not even really, you know, been, been launched yet. It wasn't really till the end of 2004 when, when Jack Ma, you know, uh, brought out Alipay. Uh, and, you know, this was one of my first lessons learned. Um, the Chinese, uh, there's a lot of rules and regulations, um, but you know, you'll see in the Chinese entrepreneurs, they're much more uh, 
willing to take the risk and uh, beg for forgiveness. Yes. Right. Whereas, you know, if you look at the international companies, uh, and especially if they're if they're if they're large and publicly traded, you know, for you know legal reasons, they have to do things by the book. Right. Otherwise, they could get sued um, by shareholders, right, or activists, and so on and so forth. And so, Ma Ma Yoon Jack, you know, saw this as an advantage for him to move fast uh, to get Alipay out there and to bring out. Taobao as his eBay competitor. Um, and uh, man, did he eviscerate eBay. I mean, you mean they, they, the, the company that eBay bought was called EachNet, um, and it was founded by a gentleman named Bo Xiao, um, who'd been like a BCG consultant. You know, he had some uh, international money backing him, and they had roughly 90% market share in you know, this C2C marketplace. Uh, at the time that eBay uh, bought them uh, via their vehicle in Taiwan at that point in time. And, but, you know, it, the, the challenge for eBay, um, even after they bought it, uh, Ethernet was, eBay was a global platform. And this was a double-edged sword for the Chinese sellers that enabled them to sell globally. Um, but it also meant that when eBay wanted to roll out, any kind of new feature or function. They had to rule it out in Germany. They had to rule it out in Japan. They had to rule it out in Europe. And they had to rule it out, of course, in the United States. And this meant that their release cycle was taking like nine months. Now, on the other side, you have, you know, Alibaba, who was following a completely different tact of, you know, almost like, you know, the, the, the Facebook move fast and break things yeah. um, and their cycle of releasing new features was roughly six weeks so in nine months they're doing basically six turns all right so we had a quick cut there yeah but I was always lots of action happening here at the uh, at, <laughs> at the, the Mox, Mox accelerator. accelerator. So it's so. never never a dull moment here. <laughs> never a dull moment. Yeah, but uh, to to your, you know to what we were talking about before, um, you know, like Taobao just moved so fast. eBay because they were global had trouble moving fast. The other thing is that you know if you think about the eBay model where the bids just keep going up, whereas the way Chinese negotiate, they're negotiating from a high price and try to bring it down. That didn't fit, but truly the thing, and actually it was very interesting to meet the, uh, the global head of the, uh, the, the Gucci group um, when he came out a couple years ago. Um, they had been a key client of mine at Darwin. Okay. Um, I explained to him, I thought like the, 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 the real game changer for Taobao, more so than changing the way the model was done in buying uh, without the auction going up, was actually at the introduction of chat yeah, into 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 the transaction because then you could actually have a negotiation yeah, over the, the price. The, yes, the haggle. The exactly. Haggle. Because the most important thing that I think eBay failed to understand about the Chinese consumer at that point in time is it's not just the buying of the product. It's the fact that you felt you earned that product by negotiating it down. Right? And if the price was fixed and you couldn't do that, it sort of 
hurt the Chinese heart, right? The idea, I didn't get any discount. Yeah. I didn't move that price down. I failed as a Chinese person, right? I didn't, I didn't do that. So I think, yeah, that's a huge localization issue that I think uh, e eBay failed to understand, you know, and they failed to move fast, yeah. right? And, 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 and when they introduced chat into the marketplace, it was just an absolute game changer. I think it's, uh, I mean, didn't they buy Skype to try to integrate chat? I don't know if that was because of China or not, but I remember eBay bought Skype they did. for they a did. while. I think they, that thing's been sold a few times. I think Microsoft has it now, but yeah, I think maybe they're, I don't know if that's due to China or not, but they were trying to integrate chat maybe. But I think also like we were saying before we started recording again was there, they, these international companies think they can just translate it to Chinese, the business yeah. model. They can just translate, oh, we just have our tech team localize it by translating eBay.com to eBay.cn. Correct, correct. And a lot of companies, you know, like honestly, I would say most companies that, that they came in, internet uh, consumer companies came into China, just had a bad playbook, mm -hmm. right? Google tried to set up in Shanghai first, right? Which, yeah. you know, you're a media company you kind of need to be in Beijing yeah. because they're the ones who are making the rules and you need to work with them. And after like a year and a half, they had to blow up the operation in Shanghai and move up to Beijing. Uh, and then of course, you know, famously they left, yeah. you know, in, in a huff and like burned the bridges on that the way crazy. out. Yeah. And, and ever since, you know, there's been, a, there's been a, a smaller part of Google that's been trying to some way crawl its way back in um, you know, with with another with another attempt at like say a filtered search engine, right? To re-enter the market, they've always had a sales presence, yeah. right? And particularly for the Chinese game industry, you know, selling into the rest of the world, they've had a good advertising business, as has Facebook. Yeah. But they've never been able to regain, you know, a presence in China. And frankly, China doesn't need them, right? Mm -hmm. They just don't need Google. They don't yeah. need eBay. They don't need most of these international companies. The one company who I will say doesn't get enough credit for their playbook and the way that they did things. Um, and I would say actually what's great is to contrast these two companies who came sure, in roughly sure. the same time. One was Groupon. Okay, Groupon did it all wrong. They you did it worse than anybody else. I was gonna say, I was, I was yeah, like, I'm oh, sorry, man, I'm I was, sorry. I was you scared me. I was like, <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna respond to that because no, they did it all wrong. They I hired... was, yeah, I, I was involved. I was, you I was, saw I it. saw that with friends. They tried to hire hire me or consult have me more. I was like, you guys are just going crazy. Like yeah. you're just hiring random MBAs at yes. bars and saying they they, they 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 you know you know basically were helicoptering in like you know American born Chinese yeah. and Hong Kong and Singapore and everybody who could speak English and Chinese but really didn't know the Chinese market, <laughs> yeah. right? And they famously did a joint venture with, uh, with uh, Tencent, Tencent and then Tencent, like, you know, the same day, basically that was signed, you know, started their own competing, you know, Groupon company. Um, and out of like that, there was so many clones that came out of that. And eventually, like you see, Meituan now is famously like this massive company, right, Who, who's done very, very well. But Groupon itself, like just, they barely lasted, I think, two years before it was just in tatters. I, I don't know if you would remember or not. I remember being on the elevator and seeing Groupon.cn, but mm -hmm. it wasn't Groupon. 
Yeah. Real sport domain. <laughs> domain name, right? They, they just they had a lot of things to go wrong. Now con- compare this to at another company who came in roughly around that same point, probably just a little bit later, which was Uber. Mm. And what Uber, I think, from a playbook, did really well in entering the market is one, they raised the money for Uber China in China. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about doing that is you have rich, powerful people who are fighting for you in China who are Chinese fighting against other Chinese people. It's a lot easier to fight Chinese people with other Chinese people. It's a lot easier to, to, to have really strong and influential people fighting other strong and influential people than to have foreigners try to fight because it's not going to be a fair fight and you're going to get your butt kicked, which most of them did. Right. It's, it's a buzzword, but it's true. Guanxi, you're not in the circle. They, you know, right. it's easy to just kill you or crush you because you have no relationships here. It doesn't matter. You're just some outsider trying to take our money. Right. So yeah, by having yeah, exactly. Having one 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 was the investment. The second was that they hired local talent that was really good. I mean, they executed so well, and they you know coming in against you know Didi. Um, I I think famously that like the head of Uber China was even somehow related to the head of Didi China at some level. Um, But, but you know, I think that that whatever the the association there is not as important as the team and and the people that they hired were really good operators locally, knew how to get things done, had the local relationships, and they executed, I mean, as well as I've seen any international kind of internet company in China, right? And yes, did they exit the market? For sure. But they walked away with a huge share. Yeah, they got got something. Oh no, they got like 20% of of DD. So, you know, for those of us who can remember, you know, looking at Yahoo and going, oh, that company's not worth anything. Well, it isn't, except for the fact that they hold all these Alibaba shares, which are really valuable. And for all those people who are looking at Uber and going, oh, this company, you know, don't forget they own a significant portion of DD and Grab, mm. right? So they've left these markets, but they didn't leave these markets with empty hands. They left with a lot of equity in these other companies. So, you know, for foreign companies who are coming, who are trying to enter China, I strongly encourage you to look at the, the Uber China playbook. I, I, you know, so many companies did a horrible job. Google, Groupon, Yahoo, eBay. Right, eBay, you name it. These were all internet giants from the United States you know, who came in and really got their butts kicked. But if you look at Uber, they didn't really get their butt kicked. They fought you know, pretty much to a draw. Yeah, right? I and I think you know, the only thing at the end was you're sitting across the table and Uber has all this private capital. Like They raised more private capital to that point than any company had raised. I don't know if WeWork ended up exceeding that or not, but it was a lot. But on the other side of the table, you know, what Didi had behind him was Brother Alibaba and Brother Tencent. And their, you know, their cash reserves far exceeded anything that Uber had. So if Uber wanted to play the long game, they wouldn't have won, right? Mm-hmm. They, they, they made, they're at the poker table and they made an assessment. I'm just going to take my 20%. Take my cash now. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and walk away. And I think that that's a great you know, result. They were only in the market for two or three years, if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah, they came in 2014, if I remember right. I remember they, they, uh, they also went to a lot of influencers. They, yeah. they got me and others in the local community. They had events. 
data obviously gave everybody free rides. I don't know about you. I was getting free right. rides forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And that, that was part of like, you know, the wars between DD and Uber was, you know, these massive incentives on riders. Right. And also on the drivers. Right. You know, like, you know, actually like the, the, the for, for Uber, the, the, the biggest expense they had was acquiring the drivers. Mm. You know, the riders actually were, were, were discounts. Um, and at some level they were offering, uh, you know, the different, uh, you know, you know, riders, uh, cheaper rides to, to just get them used to using it. But anyway, I, I, I you know, Uber does not get enough credit. In my I, opinion, I would agree for too. how for how they executed in the Chinese market. I agree. Okay, let's back to your story. So you were you were uh, you went back to Shanghai. You studied Kunming, yeah. and you were assessing different things. When did? I yeah, mean, so, I know you from Darwin, but I'm, I'm curious. Where's the gap? What's the what's the story here? Yeah. So um, when I left Kunming, I went back to business school in the U.S. I came came over as an exchange student at Siebes. Yep. Right. Seems right. And and then after that, I moved to Shanghai. You know, just straight off, against all the smart advice. You know, <laughs> from my classmates and from my 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 professors. You know, and I had three. Th you know, the way I describe it is three thousand in my pocket, a hundred thousand in loans. And basically, uh, the two companies who were doing e-commerce, neither one of them I was really like a good fit for in Alibaba or eBay, which at that point was already getting crushed. Um, so I would say I became an entrepreneur out of necessity, okay. right? Because I, you know, my Mandarin wasn't good enough. I wasn't employable. Um, and you know, it, what I saw was there was an opportunity perhaps to sell in a low trust market, which China is. Right? It's very, very difficult, I think, to sell. People don't trust each other. Um, but I was aware of uh, pay-for-performance marketing, uh, you know, affiliate marketing. Yeah. And so I convinced uh, a local Chinese you know, partner, uh, my co-founder, to uh, help me build out this affiliate marketing uh, network. And that was the origin of Darwin Marketing. Okay. Uh, first thing we built was an affiliate network called Click Value. Okay. And, um, we uh, we both put in you know about a hundred thousand U.S. each. Okay. Uh, I I was doing that with like a, a consulting client that I had at that time, um, and uh, he had saved up some money. He had worked at eBay previously, uh, and then we we ramped that up to you know uh, a couple of million impressions per day, thirty thousand affiliates. Um, Again, it's relatively easy to sell to people when they're only paying for performance. There's mm -hmm. not, there's really no risk. Yeah, just bring you customers, especially right. Chinese, but yeah. every, anywhere in the world, anywhere. But especially Chinese. Especially Chinese, <laughs> right? You know, so so that was sort of like my, you know, my original insight and in, in, in my original starting point to get in, and also like you know, shortly after that point, you know, I noticed uh, that Google was starting its rise and that search actually data was extremely valuable to e-commerce. Uh, transactions and that's kind of when I started to I think my Chinese co-founder thought I was crazy because less than six or nine months after convincing him that affiliate marketing was the future now I was running around saying well no we have to do search marketing you know this is this is the bigger opportunity you know Google is even bigger Baidu is just beginning and also the way I like to phrase it is if I had been just a little bit sharper and smarter if I had just taken that same hundred grand and instead of putting in my Darwin marketing business, I just bought stock in yeah. Baidu. 
I, I would have, <laughs> that would have been a much bigger exit than the one I eventually got to. Um, but yeah, so we, we, we started building it out. We were an early API partner with Baidu, which was very interesting, um, you know, seeing how they developed their, their platform. Um, and, you know, within three to four years, it was, you know, every bit as sophisticated as what Google was doing. You know, they changed from being in a mercenary ranking on the paid ads where whoever paid more got the top position to doing it more like Google where it was based on some sort of click-through rate, right? So, you know, we got to watch that sort of rise and we always sort of stayed uh, close to data-driven, I would say, sales, right, from affiliate, but then we were doing it with search engine marketing. And then we had clients like, you know, one of our key clients in Sephora come to us and be like, we need to do SEO. And, then, and I was like, okay, why do you need to do SEO? And she was like, we need to do SEO. And I'm like, you don't know why you need to do SEO, but somebody's telling you that you need to do it. And we were able to sort of follow our clients' needs and move from say, affiliate, search, paid search, SEO. And then eventually we really started to see, like you were mentioning Weibo. One of the more interesting things we saw is that uh, Weibo uh, from a social media perspective was influencing search behavior. Right? And in, say, SEO or in the search engines itself, you were seeing more and more content that was coming from social itself. And so we felt like, well, if we're going to really leverage you know, search on behalf of our clients, we can't just focus on like, the stuff that they publish on their own website. We have to really be trying to figure out how these different platforms worked. Um, and so one of the first sort of, like I would say, uh, software hacks that we put together was I was convinced that social was driving search behavior, but it was really hard to prove it. And uh, we ended up putting together a dashboard because Weibo released an API. We already had the Baidu API. Taobao had an API, right? And we wanted to see when somebody was like, you know, searching for something in Weibo, like maybe like hashtag, you know, what was happening in Baidu and what was happening in Taobao. And we also were very fortunate because of our work uh, with Sephora, we got an opportunity with L'Oreal when Tmall actually launched, you know, with the, the, the more the B2C model and the big brands. I told my team, I want you to track all the keywords for L'Oreal in Weibo, in Taobao, and in Baidu, right? Because people around the time Tmall started, like Weibo had already sort of like had its peak and was coming down and WeChat was rising. Yeah. And so everybody's like, oh, Weibo's dead. It's all about WeChat. And I'm like, mm, I'm not so sure about that. And what we found after the first like 11-11 kind of campaign was that the things that people were posting in social media eventually was driving search behavior inside of Taobao itself. And actually, that was leading to sales. And so we found, like, say, an undervalued asset on behalf of the clients because everybody's saying it's all WeChat. We're like, well, if we say that people are searching for this thing in Weibo before 11.11 and then they're buying it during 11.11, then actually Weibo's not dead. It's driving, you know, these, these key transactions. Now, this was kind of like I had a hypothesis and then I was able to track, you know, some of this data using the APIs. And eventually what was interesting is that I put in uh, Yoku 
as well into this dashboard because I, I also believed that uh, video was going to be a big driver from a media perspective of what people search for. Within two years of me, you know, kind of hacking together this dashboard, other than Baidu, Alibaba owned it all. Mm. They bought into Weibo. True. And there's no way they're buying into Weibo if they don't think it's driving the transactions. True. Right? They bought into Yoku. And there's no way they're buying it because both of these enterprises were not necessarily doing well. Right? I mean, Yoku was growing, but it was losing money. Right? And Weibo had already sort of dropped down, like it was being left behind by WeChat. But really, all that matters is what's driving the transaction. Mm. And Alibaba's the only one who knows where the source of the traffic is coming from. As you know, you can't track anything inside of these platforms, right? There's this wall between Baidu and Alibaba, between Alibaba and Tencent. You can't track across anything. So this, putting together this dashboard of like hashtags and search behavior across all these platforms was, was a way for us to try to understand what was the user journey that was ending up in these transactions. And whatever that hacked together dashboard we built was, in the end it was like, well, we had an idea. Alibaba has the data. Sure. <laughs> yeah, they knew what we were just guessing at, right? And I, I, I look at those acquisitions or those you know, kind of majority investments sort of as like, not that I was right, but I, was, I had a good guess and they sort of validated it for me. It right? makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember their Jack Ma. They they were like kind of jealous, sir. I, I remember some articles where he's. I think they, you know, of course, they, all these internet companies are trying to try to make their own, like especially the Weibo. There was Tencent Weibo. There's right. Sina Weibo. There was all these different Weibo's because Weibo right. means micro message, micro right. blog, micro blog. Yeah. Weixin is micro message, which is WeChat. But um, they're all trying to do it, but then. Weibo did a good job getting all the influencers, the big, the famous oh, yeah. people on there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I actually think that they missed a huge opportunity because they had already had the blogs mm -hmm. with all the celebrities, and they were getting paid all the advertising around those blogs. What was really shocking to me was that when it shifted to the microblog, right? They they empowered all these influencers, and they became the dominant, you know, microblogging platform as a result. But in a really odd way, they weren't generating or capturing a lot of the value themselves. They were letting the KOLs, these key online directly, right, yeah. to, to, to take the money directly, or like an agency like us to be like kind of managing the middle between you know the influencer and the brands. Um, but anyway, I think the answer to that, or at least my, I think you might agree, or I love your opinion, is because they weren't a product company; they were a media company. Yeah, they didn't have tech like Weibo is not sort of really well developed developed yeah. right it, whereas Tencent is I think by far the well obviously we use WeChat now but right they were by far the best product company I think oh yeah they're, they're a phenomenal product company and then yeah. Alibaba is also pretty good product or user focused whereas yeah yeah. yeah I think each one of these like as you point out each one of these respective companies had their core focus Sina was very much a media company a portal Right, you know, you know, eventually moving into the microblogging, you know, uh, Alibaba was always about like, e yeah, e-commerce and, and very, you know, how do I make the, the, the best, you know, consumer, 
you know, transactions, you know, like how do I make the best experience for consumers, you know, uh, buyers in China? And then Tencent was always, how do I help people to connect, right? You know, uh, and then from, from QQ, which, you know, you remember as like, you know, the precursor yeah. way that we would, we would do things, you know, communicate uh, right on to, to, to Weixin, right? And eventually, you know, I would say these, a lot of these companies, uh, in particular Alibaba and Tencent, became like the, the super app, yes. right? This idea of we're going to vertically integrate everything, you know, you know from e-commerce to payments to rideshare to, you know, uh, delivery, last mile. I mean, it's, uh, and then, you know, if you think about Tencent, the fact that they were able to build such a strong payment platform without actually really having like uh, an e-commerce marketplace like Alibaba had, right? I give them tremendous credit that they had the foresight to invest in the ride sharing, but then eventually like buying Dianping, right? As a way to drive the payments platform. Yeah. I mean, from that sense, I think Tencent made some brilliant moves, just yeah. absolutely brilliant. And of course, my favorite campaign of my whole time in China Homebound. Yeah, the red packet. Yeah, yeah they, like, we all knew when they did that they were gonna kill it. They did it right on the Chinese New Year TV show. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, you, you know, that that easily could have been something Alibaba did, but Alibaba was thinking much more from you know from a from a commerce perspective. Whereas Tencent, again, they really understood like the the the, the connection and the heart, right? So they were able to make that connection between like the homebound and a way to actually drive their payment platform. Just, that was, I mean, again, I still think that's the best campaign I saw in all my 13 years in China. It was just brilliant. Great, so this has been fascinating. I mean, we're kind of getting, we'll have to maybe get you on another show in the future, but um, maybe some, some tips for, for listeners trying to, I guess both you and I are not as active in China now, but <laughs> for those that are brave to kind of follow in our, following there and well yeah i would say um well one is you know uh on behalf of like say uh mox right you yeah. know uh and i'm the co-program director and i'm not running it by myself okay jenny cool. jenny, jenny. jenny and i are are, are working okay. on this together got it um but uh we're we're fascinated with trying to help companies um uh penetrate into southeast asia which, you know, I was in Silicon Valley and then I was in China from the mid 2000s until, you know, like, you know, the mid 2010s, you saw these two huge rises. And I really believe that Southeast Asia is, is going to be like the next core growth engine, you know, for all of these internet related economies. Sure. Uh -huh. But the other thing is, you know, our sister accelerator where uh, I was a mentor, you know, and I'm you an were you know, you're an alumni, China, China accelerator, accelerator you know, I mean, I would say if you're if you're interested um, in, in in thinking about how do you you know go cross border into China, um, you know look go into the the the, the China Accelerator. Uh, look at some of the companies they've invested in. Yeah. Um, they have their own uh, podcast as well, the yeah, Startup, yeah, Pulse, Startup Pulse. Right. Yeah. And Oscar does a great job of bringing in people like the head of Airbnb China, who who've also I think done a pretty good job in terms of market entry. You know, in there. Um, but all right, to, to, to your point, like some quick tips, um, you know, China is a relationship driven culture, right? This concept of guanxi, uh, what guanxi means to me is, is not, it's not just who, you know, 
Um, it's who knows you and for what. Um, and so, you know, I uh, worked hard to become like known as like a, like the search guy, you know, in China and, you know, and people, you know, would come to me, you know, if they had questions on, you know, on how to leverage the search engines in China. Um, and I tried to be as helpful as possible with that. Um, but Guanxi also means if somebody introduces you, if that relationship or if that introduction is somebody that they don't care terribly much about, um, then you're at a uh, tremendous risk. Um, mm -hmm. Because if that person were to do something terrible to you, the person who introduced you wouldn't really care, right? Because that person's not that important to them. Now, if that person uh, is, who they introduce to you, right? If say person B, I'm, I get introduced by person A to person B who's also Chinese. If person A is extremely important to person B, he's very unlikely to screw me, person C, yeah. right? Because he doesn't want to destroy his relationship with person A. Yeah. If he knows that person A is very close to me and I'm person C, person B is not going to screw me. But if person B is not very mm -hmm. close to person A, you know, it's the whole, you know, it's the whole frog with the scorpion on its back. <laughs> you're jumping across the river, you're going to get stung. Ouch. Right? Yeah. So Guanxi, I think, is very important to differentiate between just having somebody introduce you. It's, it's how important those relationships are and how important you are to the person who's making the introduction. If you're really close, then you're in a good spot. That's great. Yeah, well, of course, these programs totally help that, too. Like, I've been here to watch some of the talks and just other startups, even helping others and, and other mentors making introductions definitely also helps a lot for them. Yeah, so. right. And both in both, you know, China Accelerator and Mox were very much mentor driven programs. Um, I'm actively, as I, as I told you, I'm actively traveling now throughout Southeast Asia trying to grow sure. our mentor network um, as a, one of the ways to help our startups, you know, with growth. Even though I'm like a marketing guy by nature and I can certainly help some of these teams like improve the way they think about data driven, you know, growth. Um, one of the things that's so important, and you and I both know this from being in China, is the local context. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like you need to know people who are on the ground, in the dirt, right? You know, to, to, you know, it's not enough to know how to run a search campaign, right? Or how to run like a social media campaign. You have to understand what is the local context and local dynamics. And really to get the most value out of it, you need to have people who are on the ground there who can tell you what it looks like from the inside out. Okay, makes sense. And what, I guess the last thing, links or ways people can find, I guess it's mobile only. Mobileonlyx.com, yep. right? You know, that's, that's our website. Um, you know, we've got, uh, we're up on Twitter, we're up on LinkedIn, we're up on Facebook. Um, if you want to find me, you can find me at uh, NetChina on Twitter. Okay. I'm not super active. I don't do a lot of posting there, but I, I do read my DMs. Okay, uh, so awesome. if you DM me, I, I will find you there. Awesome, Tier. Thanks so much. Glad we made this happen. Thank you so much, Mike. It was very great to be here. As I prepare to go to the amazing mainland China, I am preparing for my VPN solutions. We have VPN guide at globalfromasia.com slash VPN, where we have different sponsors and supporters of the Global From Asia show. And it's also not just sponsors, it's also very resourceful. We have a how to use the guides of different VPNs, and we try to keep it as up to date as possible. If you are needing of a VPN or solution for using the internet in places that restrict the internet, 
Global Media likes the open internet and we recommend you invest in this www.globalfromasia.com slash VPN. Thank you. Thank you, TR. Actually, I did get to catch up with him in Bangkok. He is all over Asia. I guess I'm all over Asia, too. And uh, I had to catch him up on my return to China. He's like, what? You just left? And, uh, but, uh, yeah, TR, it's really, really great to have you. Thanks also for having me as a mentor at the Mox Accelerator in Taipei, Taiwan. It's a great place. Got a little chilly when I was there. It's getting cold. You know, I'm getting spoiled here in Thailand for now but i'll be freezing cold i will be freezing cold very soon in north china so i know frederick was asking you know regular listener china imports hall.com also a guest on the show and supports us so much with what we do here and a lot of others like mike you're going back to china and then some people think i'm going to shenzhen some people think manila it's it's really confusing i just put stuff out there you know i do have my personal facebook which you can stalk me on and I don't know. People like it. Some people say I'm too weak. You know, some people reply to my newsletter saying, oh, Mike, grow up here, you know. But I like to just be totally open. And when I got back from Taiwan after recording this interview, my wife picks me up in the airport with the kids and gives me my welcome back kiss and talk and says, uh, there's some something I got to tell you. I'm like, okay. So she says uh, her... Mom has uh, been in the hospital for five days, and nobody in her family wanted to tell her until she got out of the hospital. Her dad, which, you know, I know a lot of you listening know he helps out so much when I was in Shenzhen, even in Thai, Thailand, all these different places. And he says uh, he was back because he's having heart problems. He had heart surgery, and my wife's grandmother died last month in November. So I don't know what's going on. Her aunt's also really not feeling well. I don't know. I'm really nervous to even go there. I don't know. It seems like everybody's getting sick. But she says she's, you know, got to spend time with the family, you know, that don't know what's, uh, you know, don't want to get too morbid, but, you know, don't know how long her parents or her family will be around. I mean, that's the scary thing about life. That's the hard thing about being away from your home, especially in a cross-border. It's making me think, my dad gave 100 gallons of blood in the last 45 or 50 years. You know that? It might be even more than that. Um, that's another discussion. But, you know, I don't know. It's also my family, you know. Family's sick or not feeling well. So we made the hard decision to decide to go back to China, to her hometown. It's not Shenzhen. I know some of you know about China. Some of you don't know about China. But this is in Shenyang. She's a Dongbei girl. She's a northeastern, which is up past Beijing, up kind of almost near Korea give you a little bit of idea, you know, kind of like, I don't know about in relevance to Japan, but pretty far up north where it snows and it's freezing cold. So I will be going there. We're packing up box and stuff up, but we are not like leaving Thailand. The idea, the plan, the discussion is we're switching schools to, uh, we found some other schools, you know, and they were actually, it was hard to move the school to. So, man, it's rough, you know. I had some comments on my personal blog at mikesblog.com. Like, oh, Mike, you know, doesn't this make you want to go back to America where it's easier and more stable and less crazy? I'm like, I guess. But if my wife's parents got sick and she's in America, she probably would have flown back to China. What would I have done? Left? I guess I'd take care of the kids in America? Or, you know, I think it's maybe just the life I live. I was also talking to TR 
the guest today, and you know he's he has a Chinese wife, and he's traveling. He has kids in the U.S. and and China, and and it's all it's just part of our life. So I don't know. I don't think it'll ever be easy for me. I think um, to that blog comment, but you know we um, didn't extend the school. We only did half year, so luckily we didn't pay for the next semester in Thailand, and we're gonna start. The money is gonna go down into uh, the school, a new school for August 2020. So the big question is, where do I go? The kids and the wife are gonna go up to live with the parents up in the northeast of China in freezing cold. Like I'm talking, like you know, knee deep snow, freezing cold. You know, um, Cindy Juju. You know, uh, she says, "Oh, go to Harbin, the ice festival. I've never been. Maybe I'll go there, but." I don't know. I don't know if I can really stay up in the deep northeast of China and try to run my online business and run my business. You know, I guess I can spend. But the hard part is what about my kids? You know, they're five and three. And they're going to be fully submerged back into China. But the wife also wanted to have more time to learn Chinese for the kids. They don't know written Chinese at all. They can speak and their English is so much better. I know some of the people watching my videos of uh, my kids are like, wow, their English is much better. So, yeah, it's true. Their English is much better. So it's already gotten better. I'm, I guess it's not going to go away if they're gone for six months in Ch- in China in a fully, I guess it'll be a Chinese school. We're still looking at schools. There's supposedly like kindergartens walking distance from my wife's family's house. The cool thing is, the funny thing is they have like four or five condos in this one big you know, garden complex, you know, in China, they have these huge gated communities. So like the aunts and the uncles and the grandma, and they're all like walking to each other's houses and different buildings of this huge, like complex, multiple building complex. I think people in China know, I think in the U S it's like that. I can't remember, but so there's space, there's rooms, you know, they'll be staying with the aunts and the grandparents. Um, but I guess I'm going to, my plan is go down to Manila for half a year. You know, I'm a partner in Alpha Rock. I've been helping out with the podcast. Definitely check out the Alpha Rock podcast. I've been hosting that weekly on Fridays, more e-commerce investor mindsets thinking. If you want to check that one out. And no, and they're of course happy to have me down there hanging out, spending more FaceTime. So I think that's the plan is Manila. Plus of course, Alvin editing this today is in Cebu. We're going to I'm going to spend time meeting up the team that helps make this show and a global from Asia Shadstone team and all the content we do here. So it will be a good time to get to be in the Philippines. It's always more fun in the Philippines. Isn't that what they say? But it's temporary, you know, I guess January until the summer. And, uh, but then my kids, do I just not see them for six months? It's not that close. We're talking like, you know, multi, I don't think there's any direct, there's no direct flights from my brief research of airlines from Shenyang to Manila. So there's some Guangzhou or Kunming or Shanghai layovers overnight, you know, crazy shifts of flights. So I don't know, I just got to decide how often to go back, but it seems like the rough plan is December 20th, 
It's funny, actually, though, another story. This is the blah, blah, blah. You can end if you don't want to hear me blah, 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 right? You got the interview. You got the meat of the show. So if you want to hear the little personal stuff. But my wife wanted to go back to China earlier, but there's a Christmas party or a holiday party. It wasn't politically correct. And she's like, tell me about the booked flights. I'm like, what about the Christmas party? She's like, that doesn't matter. She doesn't like it and she's got a page to go. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't know if I really want to go either. Sorry, Miles or Maggie, but... I said, you got to ask the kids, you know, they're getting old enough. They know what's up. So they were actually really excited to go back to China. Um, we've been telling them about it and they've been missing China because they keep seeing like grandma, grandpa coming in and out, auntie, Wendy's sister coming in and out from China. And so they're really excited, but they are also um, not sure about the Christmas party. So we asked them and they're like, no, must. I, I my limited Chinese was because uh, they talk in Chinese to my my wife. And they're like, no, must must go to Christmas party, which is on December 19th in Chiang Mai, Thailand. So Wendy's like, okay, okay. So we fly out the next day, December 20th. So we box all this stuff up. Oh, man, it's been emotional. She's like giving stuff away, even though we're just going to come back in August. She's like, you got too much stuff and you don't use this. And I'm like, oh, I like that. <laughs> TR and I were having a fun chat about that last night uh, at dinner in Bangkok. But, yeah, I mean, basically we're boxing stuff up. We got somebody to take over this house in Chiang Mai. And our, my wife's using her Chinese network of WeChat groups to uh, rent it out. And uh, we're going to come back in about eight months or so. It's also kind of good timing. We skip this burning season. It's really not recommended to be in Chiang Mai in the burning season unless they somehow change the policies or the laws. But it seems like the farmers just get away with burning crops and burning mushrooms or burning trees. It's just not recommended to be in Chiang Mai from like March and April, maybe even some of end of February. It's like horrible there. So we kind of got out of that anyway. So it seems like it kind of worked out. It's just I got to decide I could stay in China with them and do that i mean that's one of the beautiful things about working online i kind of can work almost anywhere of course but the internet just doesn't freaking work in china i know there's of course the vpns and stuff and global Asia has a top blog post about vpns i'll i'll link it on today's show notes if you want some tips we have a pretty up-to-date vpn guide maybe i should uh talk about that later in the future but man it still is not reliable it's not fast i mean i'm spoiled now Chiang Mai's internet is fast and we can get these shows online and upload them to the dropbox and other online sharing tools work with my amazing team online but man, i don't know if i can do that in in, in uh deep northeast china in the snow and uh don't think so so anyway that's kind of what I'm losing a little bit of sleep on, honestly, is do I part ways with my wife and kids for six months or not? Or I guess it can be like I can go back after three months and then another three months meet them in Chiang Mai in the summer. Anyway, it's the life of what I guess what I signed up for, right? And probably a lot of listeners, you know, I think you guys deal with this cross-border business, cross-border relationships, marriages, child's personalities. It's insane. But... All right, that's it for the blah, blah, blah. A little bit, even a little bit, 11 minutes. Anyways, you can always skip that. That's why I don't mind blabbing at the end. Thanks, TR, for sharing and everybody. Take care. Bye bye. 
To get more info about running an international business, please visit our website at www.globalfromasia.com. That's www.globalfromasia.com. Also, be sure to subscribe to our iTunes feed. Thanks for tuning in.